All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Parsha. Today is Monday, January 24th, 2022. But perhaps more importantly, I'm going to say definitely more importantly, today is the 22nd day of Shvat, which is significant for a very significant reason, which is redundant, but nonetheless. What is the significance of the 22nd day of Shvat? It is the yard site of Rebetzin Chayamushka, the Rebbe's wife, the Rebetzin, a blessed memory, who passed away in 19, one second, 1988. She passed away on this day in 1988. Um, it is also, today is also the day before my birthday. My birthday is tonight, but I don't want to make this about me. Let's talk quickly about the Rebetzin, but first let me check something. I'm going to take you on a quick walk. Oh, Mark is here. Thought I heard some noise. Just to make sure that all was cool. Okay. Um, hey, Mark. Good to see you. All right, welcome. So, the Rebetzin. Rebetzin Chaimushka Schneerson. So, her father was the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Schneerson. She ended up marrying her... I don't know how distant, I don't remember how exactly they were related. I mean, obviously, you know, not, not super close, but the Rebbe, who would, be, who would become her husband, was also, his name's also, last name's also Schneerson, his great-great-great-grandfather, whatever, they were relatives from the same kind of, you know, going back to the same mishpacha. So she ended up going from Schneerson, spelled without an H, Tishnerson spelled with an H. That was the only difference. In English, they spelled their, the Rebbe and his father-in-law spelled their names in English, one with an H, one without an H. But otherwise, didn't have to change much for the last name. She grew up in the house of a, of a Rebbe. Her father was a Rebbe, was the Lubavitcher Rebbe. She married our Rebbe, who had become the Rebbe a year after his father-in-law passed away. So lots, she was around Rebbes for her whole life. She was born into the family, she got married to the Rebbe, she got married and her husband became the Rebbe. Um, a few stories about her quickly, just because it's her yard site and very special woman. She, by all accounts, and everyone says this about her to the point that it becomes like, almost sounds cliche, but it's true, she was a very private person. Very private, wasn't a you know, didn't show up front seat by the Fabrengans, though the Rebbe's wife is here. It wasn't, she never made it about herself. She typically preferred to stay home and be there for her husband and, you know, and, and create that space for him, for the Rebbe to have. She wasn't, she never made it about herself. It was never, never looked for um, honor, fame, whatever. Always very, very, uh, very private, very humble, very simple. Um, in, in a, obviously in a good way. One thing, I shared this story on Shabbos, but I love this story, because there's a lot of stories, and there aren't that many stories, but there's a handful of stories that get repeated, but I, I love this story, where <coughs> there was once, she was once coming in from a shopping uh, trip or whatever it was, and she needed some help with some bags, and there was a young boy on the street, President Street in Kranites, who helped her with the packages into the house. And she said, after he helped her, helped her into the house, she said, thank you. And she offered him some chocolate. And so this young boy, he refused the chocolate. He said, no, thank you. You know, I, I, uh, I did a mitzvah. And 
in the home that I grew up, my my parents always told me that when you do you do a mitzvah, you don't you don't you don't do it for a reward. You don't take a reward. It's it's it's. I, I I'm just wanting to help out. So she smiled, and she said, "I grew up in a Hasidic home. That means like in a Hasidic home." Or she says, "I think I grew up in a Hasidic home, or I th- and I think I got a good education also from my parents." <laughs> said, and my parents taught us that when you when somebody offers you chocolate, you take it. That was what she said to the boy. <laughs> Love that story. Right? There's one thing doing, doing a mitzvah and not expecting any recompense, and that's, that's laudable. But if somebody offers chocolate, I mean, you, you take the chocolate. It was she's very down to earth. She, of course, the Rebbe and the Rebbetson never had any children, uh, biological children. They, she took great pride in chassidim, in the chabadniks, um, in the chabad children, in those that... Um, felt inspired by her husband and herself and, you know, did their mission in this world. And that was her nachas. That was her nachas. She, there's stories about that, about, you know, pictures of shluchim or, you know, flowers that came in from shluchim. There's story, you can Google stories and find stories. I don't have anyone in particular to share. Why did they adopt? You have to ask them. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, so that's... Uh, that's the idea. Mark asked about adoption. I, 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 I don't know. So there's no way that I can answer that. But I will say that she and, of course, the Rebbe considered all of us to be your children. Anyone who was inspired by the Rebbe's call. All right. So that's a little bit about the Rebbetson. Of course, on this day, very special day, yard site. So from 1988 to 2022. So how many years is that? So it's a lot of years. When do we 22 plus... When plus 1988. 22 plus 12 is, we're talking about 30, 34 years. Okay, may her memory be for a blessing. And indeed, um, yeah, indeed be for, for blessings for all of us. Okay, this week's Torah portion is Mishpatim. My Bar Mitzvah Torah portion. When I was a young man of 13. I got up, stood on a uh, milk box, milk crate. I'm kidding. No, I, uh, and I, read, I read this, uh, this Torah portion, Mishpatim. This is a bit of a departure from the Torah portions. Reminded me of something. When I was bar mitzvah, yeah, we had like a little <coughs> box little stand to st- bar mitzvah boys to stand on. Yeah, I guess the girls, you know. Yeah, yeah, a little box to stand on. Yeah, many, sh- many shoals. You yeah. thought I was joking? I mean, I didn't because we had the bima was a little bit lower by us. But yeah, it's a yeah. thing. Yeah. Anyway, so this week's Torah portion, mishpatim, mishpatim means laws. It's a, it's a very stark departure from anything that we've done up until now from the beginning of the Torah. It's always been from Beratius, from the beginning, literally. It's been narrative-driven. Story of creation, story of Noah and the flood, story of Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the Exodus and the splitting of the sea and the giving of the Torah at Sinai. It's always been very much narrative. This week's Torah portion completely changes. The whole Torah portion, only at the end, at the end of the Torah portion, the last reading, there, it gets back to the narrative a little bit. But the majority of the, of the parsha is all about laws. Civil laws. Laws, Jewish laws, and civil law, and very practical do's and don'ts. Of course, it follows last week's Torah portion, of course, with the giving of the Torah at Sinai. The message is, not only did we get the Ten Commandments, we got the 613, I mean, slowly in pieces, but that's what was coming down the, uh, 
down the highway all of these commandments and we start un- unwrapping, we start kind of uh, jumping into these mitzvot in this week's Torah portion um, in a very serious way. Okay, so I'm going to uh, share my screen as soon as I have this ready. Could have pulled this up while I was talking, but you know, multitasking and such. Torah reader mishpatim. Okay, Mark, you have it? Yeah. Ready to go? Okay, let me do this. Sharing the screen. Mishpatim. Okay. Ve'ela ha-mishpatim. This is God <coughs> speaking to Moses. Where? On Mount Sinai. This is when God, you know, Moses spent, as we will know later on in the narrative, the Torah will tell us that Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. There you go. This is, what do you think they talked about? Right here, Mishpatim. All right, so here we go. Chapter 21, verse 1 of the book of Exodus. And these are the ordinances. Mishpatim is translated here as ordinances. I don't know if I like that word, ordinance. How's it translated by you? Do you have a chance? Judgments. Mishpat is a judgment, yeah. It basically means laws. These are the laws, ordinances, judgments that you shall set before them. I need to, um, hey, good to see you, Sandrine. I need to describe the way Rashi does the phrase, asher tasim lefneim, that you shall set before them. What does the word set evoke? Rashi explains set evokes like a set table. Imagine you walk in, I don't know, to a, Shabbat dinner this Friday night, perhaps, in honor of my birthday. Let's just say, let's just say. So you'll walk in, and the place will be set, the room will be set, it'll be gorgeous. The table will be lavishly set with food and beverage and drinks and wine and grape juice and all that wonderful stuff and food and multiple layers and colors of food. Four-course meal, all of this is actually literally describing what's going to happen Friday night. Um, But a set, set is like a set table. Rashi explains that when God tells Moses that these are the laws that you shall set before them, it means Moses, when you tell the Jewish people the law, don't just tell them the law, explain to them, give them a little bit of background, a little bit of context, give, set it out before them like a set table. Like when you sit down at a meal, you don't just get the entree. It's like, Here's the entree, that's it. Don't ask any questions. You get an entree, eat it. No. You get an appetizer. You get, uh, you get some wine. You get an appetizer. You get a soup. You get a salad. You get a dip. You get a challah. You get all these things. You get all the accoutrements. When you teach Torah, don't just say, all right, here's the, here's the halacha. Here's the law. Give them the rationale behind the law. Give them the explanation. Give them the context. Allow it to be a living and breathing organism. Even Jewish law, again, I'm going to say this, I know I'm repeating myself, but maybe I'm just trying to set this before you, like a set table, and give you as much as possible. Right? When it comes to the narratives of Torah, when it comes to the mysticism of Torah, maybe it's more obvious that you need to give some narrative and an explanation. When it comes to the laws, you might think, the law, just give them a law. That's it. Just what the law is, just say it, and that's it. Torah comes to tell us, God tells Moses, no. I should tell them of name. Set it in front of them. Make it like a set table. Make it enjoyable. I've got two notes on that. Yeah. First is the verse could have said that you, that you shall teach them. Right. But it doesn't. Right. It should say teach. Why set before them? Good. And the second note here is from Mechilta. What's Mechilta? Medrash. 
This is the law should not be given to them in raw form. Mm. It should be understood by them to the point that they can eat from it. <laughs> Good. It can be applied and used. Beautiful. So Mark is adding a little bit, a little bit of flavor here, all puns intended, that don't give it to them raw, give it to them cooked, that they can eat it. Make sure that the laws are so explained that they don't have to figure out, okay, wait, what am I supposed to do with this? How do I apply this? Break it down in very understandable terms. Make it a living and breathing, livable law. Okay, so that's the opening verse. Um, oh, I also need to mention the word mishpatim is but one of the three categories of Jewish law. There's edus, chukim, and mishpatim. Edus are those laws that are called, I guess in English we would call them testimonials. Edus is like testimony, witness, testimonials. What are testimonial mitzvahs? Like Shabbos, bears testimony to the fact that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Pesach, bears testimony to the Exodus. Rosh Hashanah, bears testimony to the creation of the world, etc. So you have different holidays and, and, and uh, rituals, mitzvahs, that are testimonials that are like, we do this because of this as symbolism. Then you have the mitzvot that are chukim, Super rational. We have no idea. Kosher. Who knows? Right? Yeah, we come up with, we conjure up ideas. Well, I think it's because it's this, it's that, it's chesed, gvur, it's healthy, it's not healthy. Sure, those are all the reasons that we've applied to it, and they may be right, they may be wrong. That's, all, that's our best guess. But ultimately, why? Who knows? God said, don't wear, I, I, I love this example, speaking of forbidden mixtures, don't wear a combination of wool and linen in the same, woven in the same garment. Why? What is it, a fashion faux pas? Who knows why? God said so. No wool and linen. By the way, a few weeks ago, I don't know where I was or what I was doing, but I happened to come across online some article of clothing, and it literally had in the description of the, of the fabric wool, percentage of wool and linen. So I call over my, uh, my son, I think it was Shalom, probably I called over. I'm like, Shalom, Shatness. <laughs> When do you see Shana's advertised? It's like Shana's is what it's called, the, for, the, pro, the forbidden mixture of wool and linen. I'm like, hey, we got some Shana's right here on whatever website it was. Who knows? And he was like, cool. Anyway, but the truth is, even if it's not advertised, there could be wool and linen mixed together because you know how it works with regulations. You only have to put something on the label if it's over a certain percentage of whatever. Sometimes linen is used to strengthen things. I mentioned this before, even though this is not a class on Shana's. But Uggs, big scandal three years ago. Yeah. The big Uggs scandal of 2019 or 20. Pre-pandemic scandal before like <laughs> other things happened. Yeah, like people discovered in, in Uggs, you know, Uggs has that, um, like that natural wool, the insole. Apparently behind it or somehow whatever part of that insole they had put in some, some editions of Crocs are you having, do you need like a switchblade to get into that? Are they like, do they tie that up too tight? No. Yes. Unbelievable. <laughs> you need a sledgehammer to like, they stapled it, they glued it, and they tied it just for your uh, smiley face. You'll never, you'll never get the food. That's the smiley face, right? That's a smile. That's all right. It's an evil laugh. All right. So, um, so it was discovered that in certain, I don't know which ones, I don't, uh, I don't sport the Uggs on, a re on the regular, but apparently some people found that they sent it to the Shatner's Laboratory. There is actually a thing, a Shatner's Laboratory in certain cities. Lakewood, they have it. In uh, Brooklyn, they have it. Whatever. 
So they found like there were linen threads because linen is a very thick, uh, strong material. Linen along with the wool. Anyway, so there was an issue with the Uggs. There might be an issue with the Uggs. I'm not weighing in on this. I'm just saying there may be a thing. But that's an example of a chayk, chukim. These are, these are laws that, that, that are, don't make sense to the rational mind. Maybe we could find some sort of rationale. Well, linen comes from plants and wool comes from animals, so we don't want to mix the plant and the animal. Who knows? Maybe. That's written somewhere, but I mean, it's written in post-biblical analysis, but the Torah itself doesn't explain why. It just says don't do it. So that's an example of, of, of chukim. Mishpatim are laws that make sense, make a lot of sense. If someone injures someone, God forbid, if someone strikes someone and causes injury, they should pay the medical bills. Is that a testimonial? A bears test? No, it's not a testimonial. What kind of testimonial? Is it a chok, an irra- super rational law? No, it's actually quite rational. That's what mishpatim are. So this week's Torah portion, ve'ela mishpatim, these are going to be the rational mishpatim, pretty much rational stuff that we could figure out on our own, but Torah helps us with this. Let's do this. Let's, let's, uh, let's jump in. Should you buy a Hebrew slave? And we, the first thing we talk about is, is slavery, which, of course, is not slavery as we know it. This is more indentured servitude, which was a thing back then, and slavery is still a thing today, tragically. But this was a different format. So the Torah says, if you would buy, if, should you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall work for six years. And in the seventh year, oh, I should probably look at uh, this edition. In the seventh year, he shall go out to freedom without charge. What that means is, what that means is, oh, and here is translated as he should be released without liability. So here the Torah is already impressing upon us some ethics and morals, even within a category of law that seems to be a little bit questionable. Slavery. I mean, who's talking about slavery? It sounds, sounds horrific. So the Torah says, okay, the slavery we're, ta- we're talking about is not the same slavery as what we know as being horrific and horrible. This is, it's essentially a term that is max six years, at the very most, the top end of the cap at six years. And as we know in other places in Torah clarifies, this is only applicable in a case where somebody has a debt. For example, they have to pay off some money that they stole. Imagine somebody, God forbid, steals. And now they have to repay the amount that they stole, but they don't have the money. And they say, I don't have the money. So you say, okay, so then now you have to work to get the money, turn the money to pay it off. So that becomes this type of thing. But the, the, the way it works is that the max term is only six years. And then at that point, freedom without charge. Freedom, and that's it. No, no more liability. Whatever happens in six years happens, and after that, it's done. Let's continue. Let's continue inside. I'm going to read a little bit of the, from the Chumash that we have in front of us, which is a little bit different than the online version, but it's got a little bit of Rashi in there. If he was unmarried when he entered uh, this term of service, then he may not marry a non-Jewish slave woman during his period of service. He shall be released unmarried. Why not marry a non-Jewish slave woman? It makes sense to me. I mean, he's a Jewish slave. That, that kind of makes sense. But anyway, if parentheses is, I think, a little bit, uh, a little bit more elaborate there. I'm sure there's a, there's a long Rashi on that. But the point is, if he comes in alone, he shall go out alone. If he's unmarried, then he can work unmarried and leave unmarried, etc. Conversely, if he's married to a Jewish woman when he enters service, the master, ah, so here Rashi kicks in. The master must provide food for his wife and children until he's released with his wife. That is very interesting. 
Rashi explains that imagine a guy, right? He's married and has children. And now for whatever reason, you know, he stole whatever it is. And now he's on the hook. And now he has to repay it. So he's sold as a slave. So Rashi says, listen to this. It's unbelievable. Talk about the anti-slavery slavery, right? That you have to provide, second, you have to provide the master, so-called master, has to provide food not only for the slave, the servant, whatever, but also for his wife and kids. He has to take care of the family. So here this guy is supposed to be paying off a debt by working, but meanwhile you have to take care of the family while he's working. It's wild. It's like it's it's a it's a bit of a different different um, understanding. Yes. Yeah. There's there's another there's a Rashi on that. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, he shall go out alone. Uh, it says this verse teaches tells us that if the servant was not married at the outset of his term of servitude, his master may not assign to him a Canaanite slaveswoman right. from whom to father slaves. There you go. There you go. That explains the parentheses here. Thank you for filling that in. So basically, if this fellow, this Jewish slave, is single, right, and he comes into his, to his, his term of service single, you, the, 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 the master cannot say, oh, I'm going to hook him up with a Canaanite maidservant and then have kids that will be my slaves forever. This is not, this is not what's going on here. We're not doing this. Maybe that's what would happen in the world, but that's not what Jewish law is going to be. Maybe in the world the goal is to have more slaves and more slaves and create generations of slaves. But that's not how it's going to work in Jewish law. That's the, I would say, the ethics that we encounter immediately. The first law, the first mishpatim, the first ethics that we encounter, the ethics vis-a-vis slavery, which slavery is like, whoa, slavery, that seems unethical. Why are we talking about slavery? First of all, it was a prevalent reality back in the day. That's what everyone was, what was going on. And the Torah is literally establishing parameters for this situation so that it's not abjectly, abjectly immoral. That if you, if you have a slave, it's only because they need, they need that. They need to pay off of that. In that case, it's only for six years, not past six years. You have to take care of the wife and children. You have to take care of their family. As we have other, in other places in Allah, you have to feed them first before you eat yourself, to give them whatever you're eating. You can't treat them like any second-class citizen, God forbid. If they're single, you can't say, oh, I'm going to hook him up with someone to have kids that will be my slaves forever. That's not, that's not a thing. So we call it, it may be translated here as slave or slavery. It's not what it is. That's not, that's not what it is in, in Jewish terms, according to the Jewish law. It's something else that's basically working for someone full time and maybe living on their property. But it's not slavery. It's not the slavery that we know where, where you own God. For, I mean, this is horrifically, right? Somebody that considers themselves that they own another human being. That's not at all what we're talking about here. Okay, I hope that's clear. Let's continue. Verse 4. If his master gives him... Yeah, these disagree. What disagrees? <clears throat> the verse disagrees. No, yeah, I mean, well, first, Rash, what Rashi says... Right, right, no. So this, is, this, is, this means... This means, oh, interesting. Who's on Mary and Okay, let's see. I think one is if you can force it, one is if, it's, if everyone consents to it. I think that's the difference. Anyway. Um, if his master gives him a wife, 
which according to Rashi here is a non-Jewish slave woman. Okay? And she bears him sons or daughters. Then when it is time to dismiss the Hebrew slave, the woman and her children will remain her master's property and he is dismissed alone. Okay. So it says here, her children shall, she and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. So I guess this is a situation where I'm trying to figure out how do we reconcile this with the previous Rashi. Doesn't make sense. Okay, there's got to be an explanation here. Um, I see. Verse 4, Rashi says, um, <coughs> How do we reconcile this? One second. Oh, I see. If he wasn't married before, then we don't give him a wife. But if he was married, then he could still father children. That's what it seems like. Which, I don't know if that seems better or worse, but that's what it seems like what it's saying. Okay? Listen. This seems to go a little bit counter to what we just said before. Uh, but it seems like if he's married already, and the idea here is to father children, I don't know that she can be forced into it, this woman. But I guess if everyone agrees to this, and he's already married, and he agrees to it, then it could be a thing. How long do this, does this woman and her children, how long are they servants for? This I don't know. The Torah doesn't specify. But his term could be different than her because I think in this, in this case, it's not really, I don't know if it's a wife as much as it is a situation to have children. A note I've got on this says the master can assign the Hebrew servant a slave woman only if he already has a wife. Right, that's what I'm saying. Only right. if he already has a wife. If he's not unmarried, then this can't happen. But if he's already married anyway, then he can father children with this Canaanite maidservant. Okay, I don't know. So we'll have to listen. We'll have to do a further deep dive into this. A little bit, little bit murky over here, but there's... There's this. But even so, there's still parameters around what we imagine would be something, a genre, that in other cultures, other societies, was completely um, uh, lawless and, and, and no, no sense of, of any uh, defense of, of, this, of the, the slave or the servant or whatever it was. Okay. Yes, right. Can you force him to leave? So good. Uh, Yeah, so that's exact. Perfect segue. That's exactly good. That's exactly the next verse. But if the slave says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. What if he says, I like my life? I love my new life. (laughs) This is great. Which, again, makes it. it, It's a feasible, it's it's a reasonable scenario. Why? Because. The servant, slave servant, whatever, this guy is taken care of very well, as well as the family. So what if he says, I like everything about my new life. I I like this. I like this. I don't want to go back to the way things were before. I don't want to go free. So then, verse 6, his master shall bring him to the judges, to the court. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master, nope, again, forgot about reading inside over here. Um, One second. 
standing the next to the door, which is actually the worst. Okay, so his master shall bore his ear, shall pierce his right ear with a pointed tool, a.k.a. an awl. And then he will serve his master forever, i.e. until the Jubilee year, which is still not forever. It's the, to the 50th year, not 50 years from that point on, but the objective 50-year count upon which everything would reset. Anyone who was a slave or servant would not be a slave or servant. Any purchased ancestral land will return, as we know with the laws of Jubilee year. But either way, that's when this gets um, undone. Anyway, what's the deal with piercing the ear? Why do we pierce the ear? Rashi explains that the ear that heard God declare at Sinai, I am the Lord your God. Don't have any other gods. Basically, don't take for yourself another master. The person who says, no, I want a human master in my life, that person, we pierce the ear as a reminder of, you should have listened to God. God doesn't want you to be a slave to another human being. By the way, in our times, if we want to, if we want to apply, I'm not saying literally apply, but if we want to apply the spirit of this, I think this speaks against the idea of working 24-7, of workahol, workaholism. Workaholism? Is that a word? Being a workaholic, right? It, it's kind of like the same thing. I, there's nothing wrong with, with hard work and working and accomplishing and achieving, so let me just put that out as the disclaimer. But, but like in this case, if somebody says, you know what, I don't want to live outside of this. I want to completely dedicate myself 24-7 to the work to this boss, to this work, to this task. Sure, but you might want to ear pierce your ears. In other words, you might want to remember that this is not the ideal, right? Why, 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 like, you're supposed to live outside the work also. There's a life outside, outside the work, and that's a life dedicated to higher purpose, and to Hashem, Torah, mitzvot. Keep things in perspective. Yeah, there's nothing trafe, there's nothing inherently wrong, illegal, not kosher, about working all the time. It's fine. It's kosher. But is it desirable? Is it the ideal? No. So what we're saying here is the same thing. Mr. Uh, Mr. Servant, Mr. Indentured Servant over here, it's time to go. Time to go home. It's time to, you know, get back to normal life with a normal work-life balance. If he says, no, I want to I just keep on, you know, being dedicated to this human master, we say, all right, you could... But let me just uh, give you a, uh, an earring as a reminder of like what's, it doesn't say an earring, it says you make a, you pierce the ear. There's yeah. An, there's, an interesting, there's an interesting Rashi on why the doorpost was used. Ah, so Mark is going to explain why the doorpost, why the doorpost is used. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll pull it up. Okay, let's pull it up here for everybody to see. So why the doorpost? So Rashi says... I might think that the doorpost is a qualified place on which to bore the servant's ear. Therefore, Scripture says, and you shall thrust it into his ear and into the door. Meaning, into the door, but not into the doorpost. What then does, or the doorpost mean? This text is comparing the door to the doorpost. Just as the doorpost is upright, attached to the house, otherwise it's not a doorpost, so is the door upright. No, it's further down. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm learning about doors and doorposts. Yeah. I feel like I'm a contractor. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Where are we? Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai? Or? Yeah, Rabbi, this is the Talmud. Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon? Yeah. Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Rabbi Shimon used to interpret this first. Very long, this Torah portion, extremely long Rashi. So we're going to 
you know, be selective here. Rabbi Shimon used to interpret this verse in a beautiful manner. Like a bundle of pearls or a great amount of perfume in this way. Why were the door and doorposts singled out from all the fixtures of the house? The whole must be, he said. The door and the doorposts were witnesses in Egypt. Ah, when I passed over the lintel and the two doorposts. There we go. And I said, for the children of Israel are slaves to me. They are my slaves. But they are not slaves to slaves. In other words, they shouldn't be slaves to, another, to fellow human beings. And yet this one, this guy, went and acquired for himself a master. So his ears shall be bored before them for everyone to see. Interesting. So I, it's very powerful, actually. Not only is the ear that heard God say, I'm yours, you're mine, and who says, no, I want a human master, I want a human ruler. Not only should the ear be pierced, as a reminder, as a wake-up call, but it's done by the doorpost. Why? Because the doorpost, that's what God skipped over, passed over. Why would I say skipped over? We literally have a holiday called Passover. That's where God passed over. When he saw the blood on the doorpost, he passed over. When God said, I am going, I'm taking you. Okay, one second. Let's just make it very simple. God says, I'm taking you out of Egypt. Why? Because you should not be serving human beings. Don't serve Pharaoh. Serve me. God said to Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they should serve me. There's no time to serve you, Pharaoh. They have a higher task. So what happens when a person years later will turn around and say to God, you know what, God? I have no time for you because I need to serve the man. God says, hold on. We have a holiday for this. I literally took you out of Egypt so that you shouldn't have that perspective. So what's going on? You're going back to Egypt? You're going back inside that doorpost? All right, so it's a reminder. Again, it's a, it's a reminder. The message of the Torah is it's really not about boring, you know, piercing the ear by a doorpost. Really, the value of Torah is, if this is relevant to any, of, to any individual, is don't do this. Don't be the one to opt in to say, I want to serve this person or I want to work for this person forever, 24-7. That's not, that's not Nishkein Leben. It's not a life. It's not a true life. It's, it's not the way things are supposed to be. Is that why... That's the message, yeah. Some of the people out, some of the younger people out there have these big holes in their ears. Have you seen those? I think that's just a style thing. Just style. Yeah. I don't think it's because... I don't, I don't see a connection. But I, it's, it's... The message here is that avoid this. Avoid the whole idea of working so much to the point that you forget your identity. I mean, that's why we have Shabbos. Shabbos reminds us, take a day off. Just so that we're not married to the identity of work. It doesn't become our persona. Shabbos is like a weekly Passover. We have Passover once a year to remind us we got out of Egypt. Should no longer serve other human beings. We, let's move on from that. By the way, in Jewish employment law, something very interesting. A person at any point is allowed to walk off the job. A per, a, an employer... Huh? U.S. law as well. Yeah, but, but I'm ways. saying, right, it works both ways. But I'm saying, right, so correct. So it's a double-edged sword, but it's very important because not in all countries, not in all societies was this a thing where somebody who was working could just say, I'm not working anymore. It's Jewish law. Jewish labor law says that if, even if they committed, they said, I'm going to work today and I'm going to work on this project and whatever, it doesn't matter what they said. You cannot force someone to do work. It's not, it's not because that's slavery. You're not allowed to enslave another human being. Is that because why the kibbutz? You know, in the kibbutz, it's kind of like that. I mean, is it mandatory? Original, no. Oh, it's not mandatory. You're saying kibbutz is not. It's volunteer. The original one. Yeah. yeah. It's volunteer, whoever wants. Now, 
Could the employer sue for damages? Yes. Let's say there's a job that had to get done today. And this guy says, I'll work for you today. And then he says, in the middle of the day, I'm done. So you can't force him. You say, oh, you said. Doesn't matter what he said. No, you can't force someone to do work. So that's, that's rule number one is you don't own someone. That's not a thing. You don't own anyone. Now, can you sue them in court because you had an obligation? Let's say you're a florist and you're doing a wedding, right? And your client is paying you $1,000 to do the, I'm sure it's not $1,000, whatever it is. Let's just say $1,000 to do the wedding, right? And you hire this guy to help you. And an hour before, whatever, three hours before the wedding, they walk off the job. And now you have to scramble. You can't find anyone else. And you do a half a job. And so the client says, I'm only paying you 500, not 1,000. Can you go after damages from the guy? You might be able to. You might be able to go for, uh, um, after damages from the guy who walked off the job. You might be able to sue them and get money from them, but you can't force their body to do work. It's not a thing. You can't force someone's body. You don't have that autonomy. Because Avadai, you are my, God says, you're my servants, you're not servants of servants. You're, not a, you're, you're, you're never a servant to another human being. Even in this case, you're only six years, and even six years is not, in, is not real slavery, yeah. Know what it is in a Jewish business, what's going to prevail? The Torah law? That's a good question. So, Sandrine is asking, when you have a situation where Jewish business law differs from U.S. business law, and it's a Jewish-run business, how do they operate? You got to, it's probably a case by case. But I'll tell you this, if a Jewish business wants to operate by Jewish law, it's only to be enforceable in a Betin, in a Jewish court. But if anyone decides to break rank, so to speak, or break the agreement and go to a secular court, it's just throwing the whole agreement under the bus. Unless there's a contract that's signed, because even U.S. law will say, unless it's illegal, as long as there's a contract, then you abide by the contract. So that's the easiest way to do it. If you want to have a contract that abides by the spirit of Jewish law, you can create that, and then it's legally binding even in U.S. law. Again, unless it goes contrary, completely illegal, there's a problem. Um, B&H, photo, in Manhattan, famously is a religiously Jewish, religiously owned, I don't know, religiously, Jewish-owned company made up of Hasidic uh, folks from Borough Park. Really? Yeah, <clears throat> legit. One of the largest retailers of photo and, you know, photo AV electronics in the world, I think. And uh, completely Jewish. Even Adorama, which is another company, is also Hasidic owned. These are all Hasidic businesses. You go, you go to B&H, you visit the, the showroom, guys with the langapayas, long coats. I'm not everyone, but you have a lot, a lot, of, the, a lot of the community is hired. Um, it was you, Adorama uh, who I purchased a special telescope. Yeah, yeah, Adorama is very... For the eclipse, because I yeah. couldn't find the sunglasses, because once I bought a thing, I thought we were good. Oh, a few years ago, the solar eclipse. And they said they were no good, and so anyway, so... So I looked, I said, and I couldn't find, I couldn't find, I couldn't find, and then I found Adorama had a killer discount right. on a telescope Ad with a special filter. It was like 60 some odd bucks. There you go. For like a $200 telescope. And so Adorama's said, good. Yeah. They're good. They're, they're also, I don't think it's related to B&H. I think it's two separate companies, but it's also owned by Hasidic Jews. Um, these are companies. B&H got in trouble recently, a few years ago, some tax situation. They claim, though, that they were completely operating with New York State came after them. Oh, I, I think it was they weren't charging tax on the website. 
for web purchases. I don't know. I don't remember the exact details. You can look it up. Lot, lot don't, but in certain states you have to under certain criteria. And they said they were exempt from that criteria. I don't know. A, I'm not weighing in here or there. I'm just, I'm just kind of recalling some B&H uh, uh, legal maneuverings. But yeah, I, I, listen, at the end of the day, B&H is bound by U.S. law. But the employment law, they could have their own, they could have their own agreements. A Jewish day school, for example, right? A Jewish school. They could have their own terms for their contracts. You just create a contract, the person signs it, it's it. The spirit, I mean, ideally, the spirit is within the Jewish spirit. I, I don't know, I don't know, it's not an area of specialty of mine. I'm not an expert in, in either U.S. business law or Jewish business law. I've taught some classes on it, but I'm not an expert to tell you the whole, the whole way through what, in what areas are the same, what areas are distinction. But there are, there are many areas that I'm sure are very different. Okay, let's jump in. Let's continue. Um, okay. Here we go. Now, verse 7. Okay? This seems to be a little uh, questionable, and yet this is what we got. Now, if a man sells his daughter as a child maid servant, okay, I'm going to say red flag right there. I'm, I'm just going to call it out as a bit of a red flag. And I'm going to chalk this up to an error that I personally cannot relate to. So if a man sells his daughter as a maidservant, she shall not be freed in the same way that the non-Jewish male slaves are released. I.e. through the, I'm just reading this text over here that has Rashi embedded. I.e. through the loss of a tooth or an eye. Rather, she must work for six years or until the Jubilee year or until she shows signs of puberty, whichever comes first. So this is literally child labor. Lit I mean, there's no other way to explain it. Again, I'm not, I'm not weighing in right now on the, on the ethos of this. I'm just trying to explain the verse as it is right now, at least for this moment. So the idea here is that there is a distinction. Um, so she shall not go free as the slaves go free. There's a certain distinction there that distinguishes her from other types of slaves. But there is a mechanism multiple mechanisms in which she does go free. Either six years, when the sixth year, when the Shemitah, when the sabbatical year hits, she's done. Or the Jubilee year, the Yovel year, she's done. Or until she shows signs of puberty. This is obviously talking about a young girl, which again makes the concept of the father selling her as a slave even more, trust me, I'm with you, even more problematic. But when she becomes of age of puberty, right, she is... Done. She's finished. Um, yes. Okay. Eight. Verse eight. I'm going to say that there are going to be some things about this conversation that I am not going to be able to relate to, and therefore I'm not going to be able to explain. And we'll get, I guess, as much as we can get. If she is displeasing to her master, and he decides not to designate her for himself as a future wife, an act which the Torah recommends, according to this translation, then he must let her be redeemed. Okay? So in other words, if there's no marriage in the cards, then he shall enable her to be redeemed. If he does, if he does betray her by not designating her as a future wife, he does not have the right to sell her to another person. So if he's not going to marry her, then that's it. She's done, she goes free, and she, he cannot sell her as a slave to someone else. This is the only way that this happens. Either he frees her or he marries her, but that's it. 
Okay. If the master, verse 9, here's another option. And if the master chooses instead to designate her for a son, so now what if she, what if he's, what if she might marry his son, right? Then he must treat her like any other girl, in other words, like any other daughter-in-law, providing for her food, clothing, and marital relations. Right? That's so the way it's described here is, he shall deal with her according to the law of the daughters of Israel. In other words, just because she started off as a maidservant doesn't mean that she's no longer, that, that when she gets married to the son, that she's not a wife who needs to be treated like a wife. All right, so I, I think we're coming to a decent place. We're starting off with the father being able to sell the minor child. I think I'm still troubled by that. I don't think that's ever going to go away um, for me personally. Um, but what we're getting at least to a place where there is an, an automatic out for her. There's an automatic end of that term. Multiple ends, either six years, jubilee year, signs of puberty, whatever that, whatever hits first, she's done. There's the marriage option. If she does get married to either him or the son, whatever it is, if she does get married, then she's a, a, a I don't know how else to say it, a full wife. I mean, it's, it makes it sound like there's a half a wife, but she's completely like anyone else who gets married, who needs to be taken care of. And the three areas that Rashi says, we know this from elsewhere in Torah, the three areas. Oh, actually, it's the next verse. Oh, you know what? Let's do this. Let's do it inside. Verse 10. If he takes another wife for himself, so let's say he marries her and takes another wife. Because, you know, biblically, which we don't practice, but biblically, um, the, uh, a guy can have more than one wife. Not necessarily, I'm not saying recommended, but biblically it's possible. Rabbinically it's forbidden, biblically it's possible. So if he takes another wife for himself, right, then he may not diminish from the maidservant who got married. Uh, the one who started off as a maidservant, he cannot diminish from her her sustenance, her clothing, and her times of marital relations. These are the three obligations that biblically, or not even biblically, Jewishly, a husband is obligated to, get, to provide for any wife, whether she started off as a maidservant or not. Either way, there's she'era, ksusa, va'enasa. These are the three obligations that are provided for in the ketubah, in the marriage contract document. These are the, the same three that we have literally in the ketubah, the ketubah till today. Um, the ketubah also speaks of if you know, the, if the marriage ends up not working out, then there's protections, whatever. But the three obligations, sustenance, that means food. Clothing is clothing. So food, clothing, I mean shelter, I guess, is implied. Marital relations, yeah, that means intimacy. So these are three obligations that the husband must give to his wife. Okay. Now. Again, the, the idea here is, let's not lose the context. The, the main point here is that even someone who starts off as a maidservant, he decides to marry, so he has to treat her 100%. And if he marries someone else, he still has to treat her 100%. And if he does not do the, look at verse 11, it gets even stricter. And if he does not do these three things, right? Uh, interesting. Rashi says it doesn't mean the sustenance, clothing, or marital relations, but it means if he doesn't designate her for himself, for designate her, designate her for himself or for his son, or redeem her. If he doesn't do these three things, then she shall be released without liability, free without charge, or payment of money 
if she shows signs of puberty, as Rashi says. So if he's not planning on marrying her and she's not redeemed, whatever, then she has to go free, and that's it. Okay, so we're seeing here, even in a, what I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm repeating myself. I don't think I'm adding anything right now in this specific moment. Even in a case, a situation that to me, and I think to all of us, begins in very questionable, in a very questionable space, it's kind of redeemed, just to borrow the terminology here in, 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 regarding something else, but it kind of, the, the story is redeemed by the values, by the, the limitations, I, I guess I would say, that Torah puts on this arrangement. Now, why, you might ask, why doesn't Torah just say you can't sell your daughter as a slave? Wouldn't that be the most moral thing to say? I, I would agree with that. I don't have an answer for that. I don't have a, an answer right now for that. Maybe there's an explanation for that. I just, don't know. Just this weekend, yeah. maybe yesterday, I read a horrible account of what's going on in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. So Mark is saying he read something horrible about Afghanistan after the, right now, what's right, going right on? Right now. That this one, this one man, was, this one family was so impoverished, the head of the family has sold a kidney Aye. to get by, plus two daughters. He has eight children. One is six and one is eight. And it's for his marriage later on. Wow. So it's, it's, but Very interesting. Okay, so Mark is saying, and horrific. I don't mean interesting and yes, like, oh, yes, interesting. Yes. So Mark is saying that he read a story about an Afghan, an Afghani family mm-hmm. where it's so impoverished that the dad sold the kidney for money and two of his daughters for future marriage, whatever, but to get a pre-dowry now. Six and eight. So maybe this is in a similar situation where there's no money, there's literally no other option. I, sorry, I can't say there's no other option. But maybe we're talking about in a desperate situation, which I still think, I mean, if I were, if I were writing this, I would say, no, you just can't do it. I mean, sorry, you're desperate. Oh, well, find, find another way from it, huh? At that time. So the only, the only thing we could say is at that time, it was so normal that Torah is responding to that normalcy and saying, but even within that genre, you still have to put on all of these checks and balances to make it as ethical as possible. And as Rambam would likely say, based on what I saw, what he's, what I know for a fact, maybe he even comments on this, but Maimonides elsewhere comments, like for example, sacrifices, that sacrifices are only a concession to what was going on then. And it was done to wean humanity off of, at least the Jewish people, off of sacrifices. Basically saying, you want to bring an animal sacrifice? Okay. Well, you want to bring a sacrifice? Number one, no humans, obviously. Maybe not, obviously, because then human sacrifice was a thing. So no human sacrifice. Even animals, not any animal, only certain animals, certain times, for certain reasons, in a certain way, in a certain place. So basically trying to completely minimize it so that it stops becoming a thing. So maybe, in a similar way, this is the, and Maimani says God is taking the long game. If God says no, cold turkey, maybe we just can't do it. Which, plenty of things God says cold turkey to, so I, 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 you, can, you can argue. I'm just saying this is one, in Mernavuchim, Guy for the Perplexed, God, uh, Maimani um, kind of says this is kind of God's intention to play the long game. So maybe this is the long game. Maybe, okay, so dad is going to sell the daughter as a slave, Okay, however, rule one, two, three, four, limitation one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, now what? So now, maybe it's just not a thing anymore, and maybe, maybe we learn that it shouldn't be a thing, and then ultimately we realize, hey, this is wrong. And maybe that's where we're at now. I mean, hopefully. 
hopefully all of us get to that place now where we say, hey, this is wrong. So yes, that, this is maybe playing the long game. Am I super comfortable with this? I'm not going to say super comfortable with it. Am I, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, okay. But hey, I don't think God needs my approval or not. This is, this, is, this is what it is. This is what it says. Now, let's continue different topic. Different topic. Capital punishment. Verse 12. This Torah portion has a lot of different mitzvot, and it kind of moves without, uh, without warning. It's just, we're just now on to the next thing. A person who strikes another man is put to death if the victim dies. Right? So one who strikes the man so that he dies shall be, surely be put to death. So capital crime, capital punishment. Or murder equals the possibility of capital punishment. However, however, if it's not premeditated, but if the person did not ambush the other, did not intend to kill him, but God orchestrated it to happen to him, very different translation, one who did not stalk him, but God brought it about into his hand. In other words, it's a complete accident. I'll give you a scenario soon. Then God says, I will make a place for you where you can find refuge. Or where he can find refuge. I'll make a place for you where he shall flee. He can find, find refuge in that place. These will be the cities of refuge that the Torah will elaborate on later on. In the book of Numbers, book of Deuteronomy. But it mentions it here. It drops it here in the context of murder. What happens in a case where, like the Torah gives this example. Somebody's chopping wood. And the the axe, the, sorry, the blade of the axe flies, separates from the handle and strikes, God forbid, someone else. It wasn't intended, it wasn't intentional, it wasn't premeditated, it was, there was no malice here. It's a complete accident, freak accident. But at the end of the day, this person was chopping wood. This person caused about that death. So there's a city of refuge or cities of refuge where he can flee. But, going back to intentional, but if a man plots deliberately against the other to kill him and, he, and his strike is intended to kill, then he should be put to death. This applies even to a priest who wishes to serve on my altar. Even from my altar you shall take him to die. In other words, even a Kohen who serves on the altar is not above the law. And here the Torah is telling us there's one set of laws for the, for the co common, I'm about to say commoners. We don't have commoners. For the Israelites and the Levites and the Kohanim and the priests. There's no two sets of law. In different cultures, there were two sets of law for the haves and the have-nots. In Judaism, it's one set of law. You take a life in a premeditated way, premeditated way, that's it. Let's continue. You know there's always these stories that come out every few years. You guys know what I'm talking about. Whereas there's like a diplomat in Manhattan and the kid, the kid of the diplomat was drunk driving and he crashes Lamborghini and, and took two lives. And what happens? international immunity, and he flies back home to London. And you're like, what, what happened? Or Monaco, or whatever it is. And you're like, what, what just happened here? You know what I'm talking about, right? These stories always hit. Like, uh, not page one, but like page somewhere, these stories surface every once in a while. Community, yeah. Huh? Diplomatic immunity. Diplomatic immunity. The Torah is saying, hey, there's no diplomatic immunity. Even from my altar, schlep him to, the, to, the, to, the, to death. Even from my altar, even the one who's serving on the altar, even the Kohen, right? There's no privilege because you're, you're Kohen, ah, right? Doesn't matter. Not when it comes to crime. There's no privilege when it comes to crime. I think this, this is one of the, you know, you can get lost in the shuffle in these verses, especially when we're also talking about things that are a little bit, to us, completely foreign and bizarre. But this is something I think we can relate to and say, ah, oh, Torah is way ahead of its time. The Torah that talks about one system of law for all, 
no diplomatic, no priestly immunity, that's a powerful uh, statement. Okay, verse 15. We're going we're gonna to just finish this reading. I know it's a little bit, we, it's a little bit drawn out today because a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, yeah, so we're going to have to save it for tomorrow. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to some stuff. So let's just do um, a few more verses here and to the end of this reading. One who strikes, one who strikes his father or his mother, as Rashi is causing a bruise, must be put to death through strangulation. Wow. Wow. So this is not kill, God forbid, this is not even taking the life of a father or mother, just striking to the point that it causes a bruise, that's already a capital, capital crime in Torah. Striking one's parents and injuring them is a capital crime in Torah. Okay? Obviously not in uh, U.S. law. Verse 16. If a person kidnaps a man, okay, human trafficking, kidnaps a man, and witnesses found him in his possession before he was sold, he shall be put to death by strangulation. If he sells him, sorry, this is not yet human trafficking, this is just kidnapping. Oh, I'm sorry. Whoever kidnaps a man and sells him. Oh, no, Rashi. One second, one second, one second. How does, how does he translate it here and he's sold? Give me a second. I, I feel like this parenthesis is making things confusing. Um, it's talking about, it's missing a word here. In, 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 I'm sorry, online it's fine. In this version, it's a little bit confusing. Okay, I'm going to read the online version. Whoever kidnaps a man and sells him, and he's found in his possession, how could he be found in his possession if he sold him? The answer is, witnesses saw him in his possession before he was sold, but then he was sold. Make this simple. I mean, horrifically, uh, horrific, but let me just give you a scenario. So person A kidnaps person B and then sells person B to person C. So now where is person B? In the possession of person C. So how do you find them in possession of person A? How do you know person A did it? Because at some point there are witnesses that say person A, we saw person A with person B in their house that, that, that kidnapped them. That's how you know, that's how you have the proof to put them to death. The point here is though, okay, forget the proof for a second. The point here is that if a person kidnaps and sells the person to another person, Human trafficking, capital crime. I think Mikan Hamakim Lahaskir here is the place to mention that Georgia, my understanding is Georgia or Atlanta, is like very, very high up on the list of human trafficking places. Because of the airport and other things. So it's important to mention this and to just realize that this is a, this is a, Horrific thing that's still going on today. Let's continue verse. It's a note I think which clarifies this a little bit. Yeah. It's simply, uh, simply that uh, it says the order of the verse which puts, and he was found to have been in his position, in his possession after one who kept it, kept him a man and sells him. Needs to be Could have been understood as implying that a necessary condition for a kidnapper to be subject to the death penalty is that the victim be found in his possession even after he's sold. Right. Uh, right. At the time that the witnesses testify against him. Right. So that's what we're saying. No, it could. E it's even before. Right. So you, it, 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 the, the, the liability for capital punishment is not if you find this person still in the in the hands of the original kidnapper. Even if they're now sold 
and they're somewhere else, as long as there were witnesses that, that, that clearly saw this person kidnap that person or that they were in their space, their house, or their, their, their whatever, home, that's enough to apply the capital punishment. Okay, verse 17. Now, a person who curses his father or mother shall be put to death through stoning. So not, not even injury, we're back to parents now, even cursing verbally is liable for death penalty. Let's continue, verse 18, and this is how we end with this one. It's two verses that really have one story. If men quarrel, two men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with a fist, and he does not die but is confined to a bed, or to his bed, then the aggressor, the one who injured the other, is put, is put in jail until it is determined if the victim will survive. Now, if he gets up, if the victim gets up and walks about unaided, right, then the aggressor is acquitted, acquitted of murder, because he didn't die. But if uh, he need only give compensation for the victim's inability to work, and he must pay all his medical fees. Okay, that's how the reading ends. He shall give only payment for his enforced idleness and for his cure. So the Torah tells us what happens. This is straight up a case of, of, uh, of injury. If someone injures someone else in a fight, someone injures someone else. And the person, thankfully, does not die. If he dies, then it's murder, then it goes back, then it's a capital crime. But if it's not a capital crime, because the guy didn't die, so what's the law? The law is, you're on the hook financially. What's the financial? There's five, five categories. There's two mentioned here, but there's really five categories of payment. Nezek, Tsar, Ripoy, Sheves, and Boshes. Nezek means the damage. The, dam the injury itself, we allocate or we... We, um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, when you have an account, not an accountant, uh, in insurance, when you... Deductible. No, no, not a deductible. When you, the person who figures out actuary, you actuary it. I'm using it as a verb, right? You, you come up with a formula, right? You come up with uh, the formula. How much is this damage? Nezek. How much is the damage uh, worth, so to speak? Appraisal. Yeah, the appraisal. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for, appraisal. Appraisal of the damage itself. So... $500 worth of damage, done. That's Nezek. Tsar means the pain. How much pain, like, emo, like physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, how much pain did you cause? That also has to be appraised. So, you're, so there's the, the physical injury, the pain on top of the injury, Nezek Tsar, Ripoy. Hospital bills, medical bills. Reap, like uh, Rufua. It's called Reap, in, in Talmudic, it's called Ripoy. It means the Rufua, the, the, the medical bills. You gotta pay for the medical bills. Sheves, Shevet is um, idleness. That's what we said in the Torah. Lo that means lost wages. They couldn't work. They were out of work for two weeks, recovering. Okay, and who's gonna pay for that? You gotta pay for that. Right? You hurt them, you're on the hook for their for the lost wages. The final one is boshes, which means embarrassment. Maybe that's psychological or emotional. Maybe the nest that sour is physical pain. So there's the physical damage and the physical pain. And then the last category is the, is the boshes, is the embarrassment. That's, that's more like the psychological embarrassment. I got beat up by someone else, whatever, like that, that emotional suffering. Um, somehow, again, is appraised. There's a way to put a number on that. The Talmud, of course, gets into great detail. So someone who assails someone else, God forbid, right? This is not what we should be doing. Someone who assails someone else, someone who hurts someone else, nezek, the actual damage. Tsar, the pain. Ripoy. The hospital bills, 
Sheves, the lost wages, and Boshes, the embarrassment. What's the moral of the story? Let's be nice to each other. I'm going to say the moral of the story is treat everybody like a mensch. No, enslave, no enslavement. Um, no one owns anyone else, right? Love your kids. I'm just going to put it that way in a positive. Love your kids. Huh? Hold on, Joy, what would you say? Well, you gotta I said, love your parents. I'm going to needlepoint yes. 15 and 17. <coughs> yeah, love your parents. Don't, don't lift a hand to the parents. <coughs> don't say anything. Don't curse out the parents. Um, no human trafficking. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of these are basics. Like, a lot of these are basics. But these are mishpatim. These are mishpatim. In a world, it's... Who went there? Sam. Some of you know Sam Morton. Maybe you know Lisa, Lisa and Peter. Sam, right? Sam, she comes around. Sure. Sam Morton went to Mexico last year. And she came, she went, I don't know, there's a wedding, a friend's wedding in Mexico in, uh, I don't know. Where, where does everyone go to Mexico? Where? Where is Whatever. I don't know. Wherever she went. She went somewhere. Anyway, so part of her tour was like a, a, a destination wedding. Fine. So she went with her friends you know, because you go a few days before, a few days after, she went to one of these uh, uh, temples, like a Mexican religious temple. Was it Aztec? Was it someone else? I don't know. Was it uh, some other ancient religion, religious temple? Anyway, she's taking the tour, and they basically tell her that, or maybe they didn't mention this, but she Googled it while she was at the tour, and they're like, all those steps, that's how they used to do human sacrifices or child sacrifices. They used to throw them down the steps. She's like, oh, like, and that apparent, and I actually looked it up afterwards. It was a totally normal, regular thing. That's what they did. That's how they rolled. Oh, that, I didn't mean that. I did not, sorry, I did not mean it like that. I did not mean it to be a pun and to be insensitive. I'm just saying that's how they, that's how their society worked, is they would just push people off the side of these temples down the stairs. It was a thing. So it's like in a world, and that's not that long. I don't think it's that long ago. It's maybe 1,000 years. The Torah is 3,300 years old. This is 3,300 years ago. It's actually 3,333. 3,333 years ago, what did the world look like? It did not look like it looked today. It was a pretty, I'm just going to say nicely, it was a pretty ugly place. Ugly is, yeah. For Torah to come in, and say, guys, here are the ground rules. You want to do this? Sometimes, no. Sometimes, yes, but. To do that is absolutely, I'm going to say, heroic. It's not perfect in the sense, I want to be careful how I, how I speak. It's not perfect in the sense that if we were crafting it in 2022, would we have included all those details that are included today? No, we would be even more, you know, we would, we would be more, um, whatever the word is, we would cut out more. But for 3,333 years ago, pretty bold. Across the board, pretty bold. Why not all the way? For that, we can philosophize. Again, Rambam says for certain things, God took the longer game, wanted us to come to an understanding of it being outright um, not, not okay. Some things God says from the beginning, why this, why that, I don't know. Again, maybe you have to look at more commentaries to figure that out. But certainly what we see here is that slavery is not slavery. 
It's not slavery. You've got to take care of them and their family. You can't treat them like uh, property. They go in, in, a, in a few years. Even the dad that, that's, that wants to pull his dad card and say, oh, I can do whatever I want. You, you can't really. You can't, not, not maybe for a year or two, maybe for a few years. You can't really, you can't really pull the dad card. You know? Maybe the Torah did, huh? Jubilee is 50 years. It's 50 years. But it's not 50 years from that moment on. It's, it's an objective 50 years. So whichever hits first, the six years, the 50 years, her, you know, turning 12 or whatever it is, 11, 12, boom, she's done. So even that, oh, the dad, you know, in certain societies, not certain, in most ancient societies, parents own their children. Straight up. That was the, the law of, of parents. Like, your child was yours to do with. Torah is saying, not really. I mean, why doesn't Torah go all the way and say you just can't? Again, I, I really wish, it's why if there was one edit button that I could pull, it's probably that one right there. It's why they had large families. Okay, I hear you. No, right. You're saying reasons, back in the day. Two reasons. First, because they would lose a lot. Right. And, and second, but it's, it's, it's also anything. Right. Anything. It's like insurance. We have to have it. We don't want to ever use it. Right. You have to have provide for every possible I hear what you're saying. So I hear what you're saying. Wow, that's a powerful idea. All right, let me elaborate on what you're saying, Joy. Joy is saying something else that I haven't said yet today. What Joy is saying is the Torah is not saying that this should happen. It's saying if horrifically this happens, there's still not the full suite of cars that the dad has. What the Torah is saying is not that this should happen or this will happen, but if it might happen, there's still a way to get out of it, right? It's like insurance. No, sort of, maybe? It's the, she said it's insurance. Yeah, it's like insurance. You don't want to use it. But you don't want to use it. it. You got to have it. Have an answer for these. If, God forbid, this would happen, then yeah. this, is, this, is how, this is how we undo it in as short amount of time as possible, and, and that's it. All right, but what we, knew, what we know for sure is that she's treated like a, if she gets married to whoever it is, she gets treated like a wife, not second class. You don't own anyone. In fact, if somebody wants to be owned, we say, bro, what's up with that? Why do you want to be owned? Right? Get, get an earring or get, get, a, get, a, get a pierced ear. Why, why are you doing that? Like, what's, why, why do you want to do that? Um, your parents, right? You got you to gotta treat them with, with respect and honor and not, God forbid, hits right. If you hurt someone else, you're on the hook for damages. Premeditated murder is a capital crime. Okay, that's, I just literally summarized, I think, most of what we talked about today. What's the moral of the story? These are the mishpatim. These are the laws, the civil laws that govern um, the Jewish moral code. Um, is it exactly point for point the way our, our laws work? Is it exactly point for point, blow for blow the way, you know, we understand it in, in 2022 in Western society? Maybe not. It's close. And in fact, we know it's a fact. It's not, a, not conjecture, it's an absolute fact that Western law is based on biblical law. So what we have here, oh, Lisa, hey, we were talking, look at you. I didn't even know which Lisa we had here with us. Wait, 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 can you hear me? I can hear you. We were talking about Sam in Mexico. Do you remember? I, I, I know, so I hope she appreciates Peter and I. That we didn't throw her down the steps. See how bad I, we <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see if I can use it for my kids. Listen, do you know what they used to do in Mexico with the stairs? Forget about it, right? She didn't 
tell me, I don't believe she told me any of that, but she shared that with you. Yeah, well, she, she, well, she shared by the Kiddush. She she'd spoke about... Yeah, she, <laughs> Sandrine said she didn't want to give you any ideas. Um, uh, she, um, at least it's so funny that we had, it's so awesome that we have you. That's great. Um, basically, she was, she told the story and then she turned to me and she's like, and you know what else they did at these temples, which the tour guides don't mention? And that's when she told me. And then after Shabbos, I checked it out and it was legit. I don't know if it was Aztec or some Maybe other, Tulum. huh? Maybe Tulum, Oh, oh, that's probably where it was. Next, because I think she went to Cancun, I think. What's it called, Tulum? That is Tulum. Yes, that's correct. Tulum. Tulum, okay, so that's it. That's got to be it, because she went to Cancun. I'm pretty sure she went to Cancun. Okay, all right, we're piecing it together. We're reverse engineering it. All right, listen, all we need is a background of palm trees. There palm trees? I don't know. And the ocean and beaches. That's it. There's kosher restaurants. We just spoke. Somebody was just there. Somebody was. Somebody just came back from Cancun. Oh, Katerina, who's here for Shabbos sometime. Yes. Yeah, so she she was just in Cancun, and she said there's three kosher restaurants. She said this by the kids yesterday. So you know what I two days ago. So what, you know what I said. Like Atlanta, we also have only three kosher restaurants. <laughs> Atlanta and Cancun. It's uh, it's basically the same. All right. Thank you for joining. It's great to see you all. I'm sorry we went long today. Tomorrow, hopefully, twelve to one. We'll keep it uh, keep it in the in the in the space. Um, don't forget tonight we have how to think like a Hasidic master. I'm going to send out an email for that. If you're involved in, if you're in that course, check out the email for information sure. for tonight. Huh? No, we're just doing it online, okay. and then because which I'll explain in the email. Okay. And then we have tomorrow night is JLI meditation from Sinai. That's going to be only, awesome. On Zoom, on Zoom tomorrow night and in person Thursday, and then we have of course the Friday night dinner, the birthday dinner. Please join me Friday night at 6:30 right here for my birthday celebration. My birthday is tonight and tomorrow. So, um, tonight? Wow. Yeah. So tomorrow we'll have maybe, uh, we'll sing some happy birthday at DVP. And what else? And that's it. I mean, it's not it, but that's it for now. All right, good to see you all. Take care. Bye, everybody. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Olia. Bye, Lisa. Bye, Faye. Bye, Dina. Bye, Ray. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye.